Welcome back to another episode of Commitment Matters. We're really glad you're here. As we get ready to head to New Orleans for the Alta One Convention, we wanted to offer you a chance to get to know Alta's CEO, Diane Tom, a little bit better. Though she's been with us for a couple of years now, and you've no doubt become familiar with her voice via her weekly Alta Advocacy Update, which, if you don't subscribe to that, you're really missing out. The truth is that COVID and the fact that your shops are so insanely busy have conspired to keep her from interacting with most of us at least as much as she would have liked. We wanted to bring you this long-form conversation with her so you can really get a sense of who she is, what she's about, and what her vision for Alta is. She's a deeply accomplished professional, and the new levels she's poised to take your trade association is really exciting. So please enjoy my conversation with Diane Tom. When we began this podcast, we were called Pandemic Practices, and the reason for that for launching the podcast was everybody was so busy and it was so hard to maybe find time for them to be in touch. They were having to grapple with and pivot with new situations and learn new things. And I lay that background to ask you if you would tell us your story so far at Alta, because I think you took over as CEO and it was the summer of 2019. And so you had a few months of getting your feet wet and then all of a sudden everything changed with COVID and lockdowns and essential businesses and our members being busier than they've been in over a decade. I'm sure you had plan A, vision A of when you started and I'm guessing some things had to change and pivot and move up or down your priority scale when the pandemic hit. So what's that been like? And what from your agenda have you had to table for a while? And what have you had to improvise and figure out in short order that none of us could have seen coming back in the summer of 2019 on your first day on the job? Right. Wow. Well, let me first say thank you, Mary, for the invitation. You guys have been such great partners for us at Alta. And I'm just thrilled to be here. Wow. 2019, it really does seem like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? So I started in July and my first Alta one was in Austin in October. It's funny, we had at least three couple senior folks who have joined our team since the pandemic hit. And we just came back from a two-day leadership with the leadership team at Alta. And Chris Morton, who's our new SVP for uh, government relations, he's like, he said, what should I expect at Alta? We were like, whew. I mean, it's hard to explain, right, what it feels like. But I could tell him what I felt like. I mean, I really felt like I was being welcomed into this large family of professionals who are really good at what they do, really care about each other, and all have a similar goal, right, is to serve their customer and get it done. And it was so unbelievable how warm and how friendly everybody was and how everybody knew each other and we really wanted to be part of that. At that point, I was new enough, didn't realize how real that was. And here we were eight months later, right, in Denver, two days after that, when everything did shut down. I don't need to tell you or your listeners the way the industry pivoted. I mean, it was just incredible to watch. Nobody needed to be told what to do, right? And in the very beginning, we had no idea what was going to happen. But I could tell you from our end, that Friday, that's when things started to happen on our end. I mean, that's when we started reaching out to make sure we were essential, talking to the right people, making sure we were ready for whatever was to come, identifying. It was almost hourly as the challenges were being presented to us. And as you mentioned, you know, I was fairly new in this leadership role and I had met all of the board members and others, but my plan was to get out and see people in their homes, in their offices 
go to the States. And that didn't happen. No. Instead, honestly, we were meeting daily in the beginning from a board perspective because of all these new things. County course houses being shut down, certain states not accepting the federal views of what was happening. You know, we were working every angle from our end to kind of make those things happen. And I was amazed at my team because, you know, we were just kind of getting to know each other as well. I mean, the ability to just step up, identify what needs to be done, and everybody literally was working around the clock to get that done. And so for me, it was exciting. I mean, obviously it was scary because nobody knew, but when I look back on it, I think, wow, how amazing was it that every single person just stepped up and things were really starting to come together. One of the things that I say when I talk about our organization and our industry, we're, we're not the largest, but we always punch above our weight. Like we almost focus in on the right things that need to be done. And so we don't waste our time making a lot of noise or sort of trying to create a lot of drama. We just get focused and get it done. And so it was really exciting to see that happen at all levels, whether you're a small agent or you're a large underwriter or you're an associate member who's got some new technology that could be helpful. So there were all kinds of things that we were anticipating could be more challenging than they were. And we were looking at different ways that we could play a role in supporting that. It was a way for me to really get to know our board members in a way that I never would have been able to, right? That's some real shoulder to shoulder stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in hindsight, that was a gift and that has sort of allowed us to do so many things that we probably wouldn't have been able to do, like the foundation that was created. Like that was amazing. There were just so many opportunities that we felt like we could not take advantage of them to make something good come out of all of this that had transpired. And to your point, our members were wildly busy trying to get their attention and make sure they got the information they needed to be prepared for what was coming down the pipe. It was always a big challenge. Well, and no matter what was on your plan or no matter what you would have highlighted for, say, a membership package or something like that, some of the things that you guys were focusing on early on in the pandemic that were so critical, one that you mentioned, making sure we were designated as essential businesses, A, so that we could keep the real estate train so running on time or close to on time. But, you know, also, you know, you guys had this wonderful aggregated source for what the courthouses were doing, what the states were doing. And as I mentioned, those aren't all necessarily things that you would think to bullet point out on a membership has its advantages sort of pamphlet. But those are the sorts of critical things that no matter what else your pie in the sky agenda might have been at that point, none of that list was going to be relevant if you didn't have these things secured, if you didn't have just operational dailies secured. And so that does not probably get as much attention from members, except for in a time when you're going through it. And to your point, the staff and the association with its experience and with its highly participatory board can help point the association exactly in the in the right place that it needs to be focusing its attention and then vice versa. The association itself can help members sort of cut through some of the things that are less important and help people focus right down in what's going to get traction, what's going to be appealing, what aligns with what's already on, say, representatives' minds and things like that. So it might not be something that you would necessarily cover during a membership recruitment talk, but those things are so critical when, especially when we're in times of radical change, like we were in 18 months ago. Mary, you are spot on. I mean, the tracking vehicle that was developed started again that Friday night. People were getting calls. I can't get my deal done. 
don't know what's happening here. So we started crowdsourcing. We asked people to send us what they had. And then within 48 hours, our team stood that up and then took it over and started proactively identifying. And as you know, part of it is the amazing relationships that we have built over the 100 years of the industry being in place and always working with them in a fair and honest way. We were able to sort of develop that because of those relationships and people trusted us and they knew what we were doing. The GSEs, they're so large and any decision they make can affect our industry in a, in a very significant way. But they didn't always understand our role and our value. We knew things had shifted when they came to us and said, what do we need? What do you need from us to get the deal done? And so it was amazing how the tables had turned and people were coming to us. And in addition to sort of that tactical piece, making sure we could do what our industry does, we also started developing the legislation for the secure, literally simultaneously. That was happening as we were trying to keep our heads above water and you know, keep the business going and people being able to do deals. In hindsight, it's amazing that we got done. But I wanted to mention, so you've worked in housing for much of your career, in addition to public relations and press relations. And so you've got a very unique and well-rounded book of expertise, including as executive director for the National Rental Home Council and as the assistant secretary of public affairs at HUD. And you were a senior executive at Fannie Mae Foundation. So and you also, by the way, P.S., worked at the White House under Presidents Reagan and H.W. Bush. From your vantage point of that, again, that unique blend of a background, what do you see as a critical thing for people in the title and settlement sector to know? Are we that unique in the real estate and housing business or are we very similar to other stakeholders? What do you see as a comparison and a contrast between us and other players in the arena? That's a really good question, Mary. You know, in all honesty, I think everybody comes to their job every day wanting to get the deal done or do the best they can. Whether it's the real estate industry or the healthcare industry, when you live in Washington, you see everybody who are advocates, right, on behalf of it. But as you said, in my case, I've been on the mortgage finance side, I've been on the policy side. I actually worked very close with the realtors at one point. What to me is so unique about the title industry is the level of a substance and detail and really the ability to cut through information and do what's right. They don't pick a side. They make sure that things are done accurately. And it's across the board. Everybody you deal with within the industry takes that exact same approach. I'm still in awe of that approach. And now I think what COVID did for us, because I think that's how our industry has operated for a very long time, but we just kept our head down and did the work and didn't need to be acknowledged for it. Now all of a sudden a light has been shown. So it's not like the industry changed. All it was was elevated. So people now know what we do and the value that we bring. We still need to tell our story and to get out there, which is a big initiative for us. But I think we've been given an opportunity to really demonstrate our value and people have seen it. When people come to us again from the GSEs, whether it's Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, on different things, they want our input, or they want to understand how we did things, or if we're doing something. We know that's changed, right, from where we were 18 months ago. But it's not like we did anything different. It's just that you recognize it. Well, I want to ask you now, how do we capitalize on the fact that, yes, we kept our heads down, which is, listen, I love many of the same things about this industry that you do. I love that we work hard. I love that we are beyond colleagues and we're family. And I love how we are not 
glory seekers in any of this. But how do we accelerate through that and continue to benefit from the notice that we have started to get? Because, again, with your background in public and press relations, what do we need to do more of or differently in that arena? Because we've never been a chest beating type of group. And I think we've left some opportunities on the table. There's lots of opportunities. And I think the one thing about this industry is the authenticity, the way people show up. To your point, they're not saying things that's not true. They're not marketing themselves in a way that's not accurate. And I think that has really come across. I'll tell you, we have a bunch of things that we've been working on. We have the Tell Our Story campaign, which has really been targeted toward public policy officials. And we really want to expand that a little broader. But we've been very effective because even in our advocacy summit, which unfortunately, once again, was virtual. But I will tell you, I was so impressed to the level of knowledge that the members, we had a lot more interaction with the elected official as a result of that. And we've seen a drastic increase, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Is our members really understanding that being part of that advocacy effort is not sort of something for fun you do on the side. It's really a part of your job as a business person. And B, you are the expert. Like, they want to hear from you. And you, believe it or not, you have the relationships and you don't even understand how, you might not feel like it's the right thing, but you are adding real value to a member of Congress or a senator when you share with them the knowledge you have or the type of information when they know what your work is in their community, how many employees you have. So I think sort of changing that model around and really We've been working really hard to help people sort of take the advocacy piece for themselves to the next level and identify who those influencers are in your neighborhood or that you work with in your business circle and get to know them. Because next thing you know, they could be the state legislator, right? And then from there, they're going to run for Congress. And we have folks. We have Sylvia, who used to be on our board, has folks that she's worked with for 15, 20 years who are now in a position. And they turn to her when they want to know something about the title industry. Let's ask Sylvia Smith because... I've known her for 20 years. She's a great resource. So really trying to sort of help our members sort of connect to their communities because they're much better spokespeople than we are, right? We can give them the resource, help develop the strategy, keep them on track and give them, you know, the confidence to get in there. A lot of it is just the confidence, right? To know that people want to hear from you. You're 100% right. And I love the way you phrased that flipping of the equation, because when I first started came in this and, and I am no extrovert, I can play one on TV, but I'm an introvert. And, you know, there's a bit of an intimidation factor when you're dealing with an elected official, especially at the national level. And you think, boy, everybody just wants five minutes of their time and everybody wants a piece of them. And you can kind of psych yourself out of engagement before you ever get started. But when somebody takes you aside and whispers, no, 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 no. they want this information from you more than you want to give it to them. It's what keeps them dialed in. It's what bolsters their staff's arguments and sway within that. I think it's critical for two things to happen. First, somebody has to tell you that little secret of they're not doing you a favor, you're doing them a favor. And then you have to take a deep breath and go in on one first one and expect to have a thousand questions that you can't answer and feel a little foolish. And then it doesn't go that way even remotely. If you can have those two pieces of the puzzle, then most people I feel like get hooked once they get that understanding that they can be influential about the things that are important to them and matter to them. It's just that we don't think we're used to title and settlement not being important to anybody else. So who the heck would want to listen to us? Right. And it's exactly the opposite. 
Totally. And particularly during the pandemic, because the housing industry was keeping the economy going when other people weren't sure. So again, we were hearing even from elected officials, what can we do to help you guys move forward? How can we make sure that the people who want to get into the homes, get into the homes? And that's where our secure notarization legislation, that we have a lot of support on both sides of the aisle, because why wouldn't they? Because it's so important that folks would be able to do stuff. And honestly, it's not just during the pandemic. People with disabilities, people who work night shifts, people who are international and coming back. It's really for a lot of folks who didn't really understand the importance or knew how large the audience has really shifted. But to your point, Mary, back to our members, a lot of our members are introverts. You're right. They have a lot of knowledge, but they don't really understand the value it is to so many outside of our industry. And that's another big effort. You know, in July, we had our board coming. We were very lucky. It was sort of post 4th of July before the next version of the virus hit. And so we were able to be in person here in Washington, D.C. and do our planning for next year. And all the knowledge that we now have as a result of the pandemic and being in person, we really want to focus on our partnerships, working really closely with, you know, the realtors and the mortgage bankers and the GSEs and everybody else, because we recognize that we're all in this together and having that technology that all of us can use that supports is really valuable. And as I said, I can tell you multiple times when policymakers from the bankers, even the American Bankers Association, others came to us, what can we do? or asking us for advice because they saw all the way we were able to pivot and get things done and get focused and not have to take credit for it. You know, that it was something that we were all moving towards the same, for the same objective. So that's been, I think our reputation has been enhanced as a very solid public policy folks, easy to work with, willing to do the work. I think we'll have some big wins on the legislative side that will show all of our hard efforts. Yes, I'm, I'm hoping so. Another thing that I always find when talking with an elected representative, be it local, state, but especially federal, is they want to know, what are you seeing? How's business? But not like, how's your volume necessarily? What are you experiencing with consumers in the shop? And they may not frame the question that way. They may not phrase it that way, but that's what they want to know, especially when there's a concern about whether or not What's happening in especially Washington, but also in a state capital, if those policies being enacted, especially when they're going quickly, are having the intended benefit, if there's something else going on in the market that they have not heard about and have not attempted to address. So we've really got the that boots on the ground, even more so than the loan officers, because we see a broader scale. We see buyers and sellers and builders and realtors, so we can paint a better picture or more thorough picture oftentimes. So we see across lenders and, and all of those things. So I have found that when breaking the ice in a conversation, which Alta never leaves you to do it alone if you, if you don't want to, I just start telling them what's going on in our shops. Right. And they lean in and they always want more, more information. Well, and a perfect example, Mary, of that is the wire fraud, right? Yes. I mean, that has been something that our industry has been focused on and being addressed. And we're now trying to elevate that to a level where we can find out what everybody's doing across the board, because there's lots of different areas where people have put focus on it, but nobody's sort of collectively really focused on doing this. And now it's with 
everybody working remotely in so many ways. It's even more prevalent than it's been in the past and how that happens and how to avoid it and sort of educating and, and really getting our voice out there. So that'll be a big focus in all to one as well, because that's what we've heard from folks. And obviously the cybersecurity piece, right? In our industry, we are as well formed as anyone and it still is happening across the board. And so those types of things, I think, particularly because we do pay attention and we have been watching these things very closely, that we have some real value to add there. Well, and if you really want to surprise a legislator, they know when you come in that you're from the title and settlement industry, and that has a certain mild mannered, you know, maybe introverted, very trustworthy, trustworthy, highly up to speed. And so then when we say something, for example, oh, by the way, we support the Safe Banking Act, that's a real curveball for them. And now they're really leaning in. Well, what? These conservative people in your little blue pinstripe suits or are, are you pro pot? Right. <laughs> and and then but it but it's a different conversation piece against the backdrop of what we can tend to think about is, oh, don't put a lot of new regulations on me. I'm a small business and it hurts. And those are the conversations that are harder to have, but an easier one to have is either you're throwing them a curveball that they don't expect you to be in favor of, or let me tell you what's actually going on in your district, which they're always starving for in this sector. And a perfect example of that is the 1031s. Yes. Because there are perception, right, out there that it's only the big guys that benefit, right, and use them. And as we all know, there's farmers, there's so many small business people that benefit as a result of that. And it's really, really important. I think we've done a really good job as of today. 1031s are still in there and we've been really advocating hard for them because we know how important it is to folks in our industry. And it's, again, it's a much broader making sure that the folks who are making those decisions really understand that. She mentioned the farmers and those other scenarios, but also a large percentage of single and multifamily housing rentals are accomplished via 1031. And so if that 1031 break gets significantly reduced or eliminated, what does that mean for affordable housing, which is on a collision course, right, with this topic, I feel like? Totally. And, you know, that's a top priority of this administration. We want everybody to have access to homes that are safe and affordable. And and I could tell you, Mary O'Donnell, myself, and I think it was Tara Smith. She had just joined our board, had a conversation with U.S. Senator Sheehan from New Hampshire. And we laid out the 1031 issue for her. She was shocked. She said, I had no idea. I kind of thought it was just all those rich, big developers who were benefiting from this. I had no idea. And it was all women on this particular conversation that we had. And they were two strong businesswomen. And I think for her to hear that, they understand that. They can't know everything. So our job is to bring these things to their attention and make sure they understand it before they make a decision that, to your point, could have some really unintended consequences. Well, I want to pick up on that thread a little bit. I knew in advance of our conversation today, I wanted to talk with you about women in business. That's a topic I know that's close to your heart, mine as well. So you've served as president and CEO of the National Association of Women Business Owners, and you're a member of the International Women's Forum of Washington, D.C. So our industry, title and settlement, is a majority female workforce. Do you have a favorite subtopic or area of focus in the women in business sort of arena of subjects? What are you most passionate about there? The first one I think is for everybody, which is the mentoring piece, because I think that's so important. Throughout my career, I don't think I would have gotten where I was if there wasn't somebody who sort of you know tapped me on the shoulder to give me an idea or suggested I come along. And there are still to this day people that, that have served in that capacity for me and 
they'll be in town or I'll tell them I'm coming to town and they'll say, oh, you need to come here. And I won't even know where I'm going, but I will do it because it's then. And I'll make a relationship or some type of business contact that will last for the rest of my life. And I think women are very good to each other that way. But I also think we can't underestimate using men in the same way because that's how they do business. We think we're intruding or it's not what we should be doing. Sometimes I think we just need to be given permission, right? And say, that's exactly what you should be doing. And it's not only should you be doing, but it's your job. Can we go ahead and give everybody permission now, just a carte blanche permission to be involved, state your opinion, state your preferences. And find a mentor, reach out to someone, ask for their advice, ask them how they got to where they are, if that's where you want to be, because you'd be surprised if you just ask. Then the other piece I think is really particular for women in business entrepreneurs is really access to capital. Women don't even ask for it or they won't ask for enough. They want to start small. And a lot of times there's no reason for them because they, whatever they're trying to do, they, they're they going to put the same amount of work into it, whether it's 10K loan or it's 100K loan. But there's this sort of just kind of getting over that, that leap that you deserve it and that you have the potential to do it and you should do it. I think a lot of times the folks that are lending, they say when men do these, it's what their potential is. For women, they have to show what they've already achieved. I have seen two other instances that I think are noteworthy. One being that women will be less likely, I think, to even apply for a small business loan. They'll think more in terms of, okay, what can I start up based on my own cash, which is not a position a lot of men take. That one gets sort of very problematic. And then the other I've seen consistently too is that women... I'm overgeneralizing, and I know that's dangerous, so don't blow up my Twitter, folks. But women tend to feel very responsible for the entire lives of their employees, and so they will hesitate to pick up their growth by hiring when the business calls for it. And even though that there's risk involved because they don't feel like they're bringing on an employee, they feel like they're adopting a child, essentially. Right. And so I think there's some hesitancy there. We've heard this across the board. People can't keep employees. They're working hard. Getting good talent and attracting them to our industry is another top, top priority for us because, you know, it's important. We have to make people understand how attractive this industry is. I think that's, you know, for women in particular, that is a challenge. They're willing to do all levels of the business when it's really not, it doesn't serve them well. There's some great programs out there. When I was running NABA, we worked with Goldman Sachs. They have a small business, women in small business. And it's almost like an MBA. It's a, you do almost like 12 weeks of weekends and they come in and they kind of do an assessment of your organization. And I've seen businesses grow significantly who have participated in those types of, and it's really impressive. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I think really it's just information. They've got all the tools, right? It's just how to deploy them where, to your point, they're not sort of burning themselves out. They're leveraging what their opportunities are. And it's, and, and you have to take some risk, right? I think we tend to be a little risk adverse. So I think that's another piece of it. And having a network of peers and colleagues, or they might be colleagues today, and maybe you don't feel like they're peers yet, but they can become your peers. I can tell you so many people tell me, and I certainly would attest as well, that the sort of the best professional upgrade you can give yourself in this business, help take your career to the next level, is all to membership access and especially participation. So many of our listeners have heard the Alta presentation maybe at their state association if they're not active Alta members now. And some will have come away from that 
Malt a presentation at their state association with a notion of, well, that all sounds very important, but it sounds to me like something other people do, or it, it sounds like there's a, a mechanism in place there, and I don't know the right people, I don't have the right connections, I'm not well-versed enough on a lot of these topics to be a meaningful contributor. So what words of advice would you have for those who might be interested in participating in ALTA, but don't yet sort of have the slightest idea of how to begin, or maybe they have anxiety of whether or not they should have a seat at the table? What would you say to those people who's either companies have a membership, but they haven't participated a lot yet, or maybe they are in a company that doesn't have a membership? How should they approach? You know, that's a great question, Mary, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to say that because as we talked, a lot of folks in our industry are introverts. So going out and physically having to meet people for the first time and find out that's not something they enjoy, right? We had a board member who told me last year he was really happy to go virtual because for him as an introvert, he could participate in any way he wanted to. It was much more comfortable. So here's something I would say for this year, and we're going to hopefully keep this moving forward, but it's sort of a trial period. We are going to continue to have a virtual option for those who just want to kind of find out what is this all about. And so drop in. You don't have to participate in all the pieces. It'll give you a really good sense of what to expect. And we also find a lot of folks who couldn't take the time away, right? People are busy, right? If you can't take five days to travel or and pay for your hotel and do all those things, this is one way that you can put your toe in. And I will say both for advocacy and for Alta One last year, because we were fully virtual, we had a bunch of new folks that we're hoping are coming back this year. And we're also tracking it very closely and we're hoping that at least half of them that participate virtually will come in person. The reality is it's an amazing opportunity. I mean, the content and the level of information that you can add to your business and the networking. I mean, I can't tell you, I will tell you the feedback we get, their people's business grow significantly when they participate in our events because they're interacting with their peers. They're learning how they do something differently. It just helps because, again, most of us are, we've got our head down. We're trying to get through the week, right, and get things out the door. And it gives you an opportunity to put your head up and really kind of focus on where you want to prioritize and help get there. So we've got some great speakers this year with great topics that we're focusing on, a lot of the technology and innovation. We know some, a lot of folks are like, how am I going to do this? Like, even the secure stuff sounds a little overwhelming. You know, and we really want to, a lot of it is very practical, you know, we have one of our speakers was talking about, yeah, I have five people that do closings. I'm going to have one person do online stuff because I just don't have the volume. But if I need to do it, I've got that person. And they might, 60% of their stuff might not be online. So there's just some real practical ways to learn how to be ready for this, but to not have to like completely upheave what you're currently doing and how you're doing the work. So if we really want to take people where they are and kind of get them to where they need to be and make sure they know that those, that information's out there. Well, and I would say as people look at the agenda and maybe attend virtually this year, if you're someone who has not been to a conference before, you know, you can look and see the great subjects that are being covered. And you're right, they're very vast. And and I know Alta always goes deep on the topics, too. So it's not just going to be cursory. But I would recommend doing a proposal and maybe, you know, outline what you intend to attend what you intend to learn and what you'll bring back to coworkers if you were allowed to attend this conference, because a lot of companies are rethinking their travel budgets too. And I would be sure and include in there some ROI estimates. You don't want to be silent on the cost. I would include in that proposal, maybe a template for an after trip report that you're going to let your owners and peers in on what you've learned. And I think that would be very compelling. And it also would help put your thoughts together about 
Why is it important for you to attend? How's it going to benefit your career today, your employer today? And so I would I would think that that would be a very good opening salvo if you're someone who has not attended in the past. Obviously, if you have someone within your company who already attends, and maybe if they are available to be reached up to, to be a mentor, or if you're one of those people, reach down and grab someone because we do have a silver tsunami that we have to cure. And that's a really good way to do it. I would also say if you are someone who has attended, but aren't really involved, find a committee that is a subject that you are at least very interested on, ideally when you're passionate about. It might not be where you end up. It's kind of like college. Get in, find your group, find people of like mind, and then you're going to have instant friends. I promise it's the title business. You'll have instant friends. You know, Mary, thank you for bringing that up because our membership team has done an amazing job. If someone signs up who has never signed up before, they actually are like a buddy. They assign them a buddy from the membership committee, right? So these are other people who were just like the folks who were thinking when they remember what it was like for them the first time and they needed someone to kind of walk them through the process. And, and the engagement piece is really critical, right? Early on, if you can get into a place and have somebody who can help you navigate through this and get to that place. And I think that they could make a great business case, not just for themselves, but for their organization in the long term. I have conversations regularly with even some of our larger members, you know, having spent a lot of money on education. We're like, wait, we do that. You know, we can do all of that. We like to say, particularly for the majority of our members who are smaller, that we can be your back end, right? We have all those resources. And a lot of it is free. You know, you pay your annual dues. But there's a lot of resources for HR support or negotiating salaries, you know, a lot of the stuff that the day-to-day stuff that where do you go and how do you start? We have great resources in our education department that I think folks, I think the other thing I would just sort of urge your listeners who might be thinking about that, what is your post-pandemic goal? What are you going to do next? Like what better time to be thinking about your future and your development, personal development, as well as your leadership development? And this would be a great place. And I will tell you, the hotel is excited to have us. Fortunately, they did not get any damage. They've got their power back. One of the things that we feel really strongly about, because the title industry does this and they do it so well, is helping New Orleans get back on their feet by us showing up. And I think they're going to welcome us with open arms as a result of that. They want to make sure people know that they need us to come. I'm so glad to hear you say that because the Two most frequent questions I've received, I would say, over the past two weeks are, one, is Alta One going to happen in person? Yes, it is. And two, do they want us there? Are they trying so hard to recover that we would be a burden? And it sounds like you're saying, no, their arms are open. (laughs) These people have jobs they need to fulfill. Exactly. Right. One of the exciting things we're going to be able to do, as I mentioned, the Good Deeds Foundation, as we announced our first round of grants after all to we did it earlier this year and now we have a second round but even before we get there as a board we decided to do a grant for the hospitality workers in new orleans we want to take care of the people who are taking care of us we thought that that would be a great way for us to sort of help get those guys back up on their feet on the ground and back up and running so for those that don't know everything that there is to know about the Good Deeds Foundation. How did it get started? How's it going? How's it helping us to strengthen communities? And because I, I love that we did this. This was this was fantastic. I could talk for hours about this. This is one of the most exciting things that I've been a part of in my professional career. It was this time last year, actually, maybe a little bit earlier. It was maybe June, July. And it was becoming very clear that we were probably not going to be in person in New York. 
And as you remember, Mary O'Donnell from West Corps was our current president at the time, and she's now our current past president. And we were brainstorming about all of the members who normally do these big events around Altula. What could we do? And, you know, West Corps being one of them, too, and the money that they spent. I wonder if there was an opportunity for us to do something that would really sort of help people that we could sort of leverage that. We noticed all of our members doing these amazing things, food drives, right, for their for their neighborhood animal care shelters, right? They were taking care of their communities like they always do. So we started a social media campaign called Good Deeds, like send us your good deeds, right? And so we had people sending us all kinds of things and it was really fun. Then when we thought, well, why don't we launch a foundation? Mary Mary was amazing. That woman had so much energy and so much drive. She was like, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to commit X from West Corps and then I'm going to get all these other guys committed. And they did. And so next thing you knew, we launched this foundation and we thought we would raise 150, maybe something. We have $600,000 that we raised. I mean, people were amazing. It was, and I got to tell you, the first round of proposals that we received, it would just warm your heart to see how much we actually really focus on the work that our members are doing in their communities. There's lots of ways that supports our communities. And so just seeing the involvement of our members in these different nonprofits in the communities, just amazing. And the impact that we're able to have in a really short period of time has been, it's just so rewarding. So we really encourage folks to, you know, check out our website, alltogooddeeds.org, and to participate because we, we really feel like that's the way we can really give back to our members and their communities and enhance the good work that they're already doing. It's just phenomenal. And you're right, it is heartwarming. And I was glad to hear you make that delineation. I thought when it rolled out, because I didn't read the fine print, that it probably needed to be a housing-related charity or organization. It's about how we are engaged in our communities, right? If it has a housing focus, fantastic. But to your point, if it's puppy dogs or any number of charitable situations, if it's something that one of our members feels passionate about and participates in, I'll bet you'd like to see a grant request from them. Absolutely. We've done a lot of work with seniors. We've worked with veterans. We've worked with kids with disabilities. I mean, it's really been across the board and it's amazing the impact that our members are having in their communities. That's great. Well, we touched a little bit about advocacy and why that's important and how people can feel a little less anxious about becoming involved. And, you know, we had a great episode with Steve Gottheim here this summer. So I just wanted to check in with you on on a couple of the things that you mentioned earlier, sort of what's the latest going on with a federal remote online notarization, formal action, anything? Do we have hope? Do we not have hope? Where are we at? We always have hope, Mary. (laughs) We are eternally optimistic here and working really, really hard. But just a quick update. We have 37 states right now that have RON legislation, remote online notarization. Alta is continuing to support, and we actually drafted this legislation, but we have lots of folks who are now supporting it. It's bipartisan, securing and enabling commerce using remote electronic Notarization Act, which we refer to as the SECURE Act. The bill has been reintroduced in both the House and the Senate, and it allows for the immediate nationwide use of RON, Remote Online Notarization. As I mentioned, 37 states have it in different capacities right now, but this would be across the board. The legislation provides certainty for a lot of the interstate recognition of RON and establishes minimum standards to ensure strong nationwide consumer protections, which we know is really important in our industry. And we have Madeline Dean, a congresswoman from outside of Philadelphia on the Democratic side. And we've got Kelly Armstrong. He's a Republican from North Dakota. 
they both introduced the bill on the House side. Both of them came to meet with us when our board was in town in July for breakfast and talked about it. It was really awesome because I know most people don't get to see Democrats and Republicans working together these days. And it was they were awesome together coming up with ways that they are trying to get this done. Well, that's refreshing to hear. Yes, I know. That's the part nobody sees, right? And then on the Senate side, we've got Mark Warner, a Democrat from Virginia, and then Kevin Kramer, also from North Dakota, who have introduced the companion bill in the Senate side. So, you know, we're feeling pretty good. Well, of course, you're following is reconciliation is happening here in town. We have to talk about that. Right. So we're hoping that we're going to find a way to sneak it in there and that we could get it through this. It's a long shot, but we're, we're going to keep trying. And do you think the reconciliation bill is going to go? I think it will, but there's talk of it having to happen like Wednesday. I don't think we're going to see anything till like October. We'll probably still be talking about this when we see each other in October. We probably will. Well, and a Prime Minister Manchin sort of came out last week with his, uh, appears to be bottom line. We don't know if it's bottom line or not. I imagine that's got people kind of going back to the drawing board and carving, trimming down some things. And what did you make of that? Every vote counts these days, right? When you've got a 50-50 Senate, it's really amazing to see how these things are going to shake out. It's a real interesting time. We feel pretty confident that when folks really understand what we're trying to accomplish and they focus on it, that they will do it. We just have to, with so much going on, it's really getting the attention of the right people is the biggest challenge for us. Someone pointed out to me a couple of weeks ago that with your background, both at the White House, but especially with Fanny, that you are uniquely tuned to understand the important role that appropriations plays in policy. And I'm not sure that's a space where we've necessarily gone heavily to bat before. We normally just state our positions on the policy and why and assume that people were, are going to devise that we're on the right side of things and all of that. But it was suggested to me, and I thought it was very interesting that you're might be able to help us focus more on the appropriation side of things. Do you feel like that was an accurate assessment or what do you think? I think we have definitely focused on the appropriation side. From my perspective, I think any relationship you have is really important. And the more people that understand what you're trying to accomplish, but I cannot take credit for it, Mary, because really it's Emily Tryon has been working on the Hill for a long time and understands and was the one who brought it to our attention. And she has done a phenomenal job. She quietly gets things done. Again, it comes back to relationships and understanding how these things work. And we've had so much goodwill that we've been able to build up. And we have had such great progress on that piece of it. Because at the end of the day, it's all about where the money's coming from. We can have the best legislation in the world, but if you can't get it paid for, it doesn't matter. It sits there. And I've seen that happen in my 30 years in town. Having someone like Emily who understands that and knows how to get done and knows our industry really well has been really, really just amazing. I don't think our members really understand that. How does that affect me? We call it the what's in it for me in the long run, but there is such a value. And to your point, I think most people focus on their most important committees, right? The ones who have oversight and regulatory. But these members talk to each other. They all learn from each other. They horse trade with each other. So there's a lot of relationship building that really is beneficial to have on the other side as well. Let's pretend for a minute we're past the pandemic times, both from a volume perspective and a virus perspective. And so you can resume a little bit more towards your original plan A. Where do you want to take the association in, I don't know, look out three, five or 10 years in the future? 
And that's such a great question because when I got hired, that was the question. When Dan and others were interviewing me, it was sort of my goal was to look around the corners and see what was coming down the pike three to five years from now. Well, we're there. We are in the middle of it. And who would have thought? So in some ways, that has been a gift because I think there were a lot of people who never thought it was possible or that it would be something that they could benefit from or be a part of. So now it's really integrating it, finding a way that we can all, with our partners, collaborating with others in the industry that we know that we get the technology right because it's not going away in terms of what our role is and how we can do that and making sure that we're bringing everybody else along because I think there was a fear that maybe I won't be needed. Well, we now know people are needed. The information that they provide, it's the technology is a tool, right, for us to get there. So we need to, from an organizational standpoint, I think there's a, a lot of growth for us in terms of expanding our membership base and how we serve our members and a lot of growth within our industry. So one of the things we're looking at is better serving segments of our industry, like doing a little more specific for our underwriters or for our larger or for our mid-size, making sure that our organization reflects what's happening in the marketplace. And it's been a few years since that's happened. So we've done a really big assessment inside the organization to make sure that we're better prepared for that. And we're in the process of sort of what are the, the value props that we're going to be able to deliver to our members. So stay tuned. It's going to be pretty exciting because all I see is opportunity for us in our industry. I'm going to guess you're going to need some help both from your current members and some new members with all that. Definitely. Definitely. Shall we put out a recruiting call right now? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I, I can tell every listener without exception, membership and more than that, participation in ALTA will change your professional life. So if you need to step up your participation, please do. Again, if you have been wanting to become a member or not sure what the benefits would be, I'm going to issue a one-year challenge. Just try it for one year. Commit to making one conference and have a membership for one year. And if you really lean into that, and I know it's hard to think about taking on any additional thing right now, but if you really lean into it, I promise the benefits that you extract out of it are far greater than the time and effort that you put in. You know, Mary, I couldn't agree with you more, and I know that's my job. But having worked in other organizations, I just feel this is a very unique industry, and Alta tends to have represent everybody in a way that really works for everybody. And to not be part of that, it's unfortunate because it's a great way for you to, as you said, not only enhance your business, but also your personal relationships. So many of our members are all very good friends, which I find so unusual, which is amazing. Well, thank you very much for your leadership at Alta, for your vision and bringing your experience to the table, your enthusiasm. I know it's been tricky in the pandemic to get to know as many of the members as well as you would like to. We will take the next steps towards that in New Orleans. Yay, the conference is going on. So we'll mask it up, we'll sanitize up, and we'll go have some community in New Orleans in October. Absolutely, Mary. And just so you know, we're doing everything we can to make sure that you're going to be safe from the pandemic, as well as make sure that we're bringing life back to New Orleans. And we want to see everybody there. Any questions you have, let us know, because we want to make sure we get that information out there that we are full steam ahead. Yes. Well, I wouldn't miss it for the world. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to see you and all the other folks that I haven't had a chance to see in person or really get to know. So it's going to be great. Diane, thanks so much for the conversation. We look forward to seeing you in New Orleans. I hope that at least a few of you listeners will rethink how you engage with your trade association. 
Alta exists so that you have a voice and a network of colleagues with whom you can learn and grow so that together we can protect our industry. Now, if you're coming to New Orleans, find me and ask about my, mm, what I think would be a Shark Tank winning idea for a disposable shoe kiosk in the New Orleans airport. If you're not coming to New Orleans in person, I hope you can join us for the virtual component. There's still time to register. And if you aren't doing either, maybe start working on the ROI template that Diane and I discussed and see if you can make a compelling case for attending next year. Your trade association helps you better meet your commitments, which is important because what you do really matters. Mm -hmm.